is Terry Bradshaw, quarterback, Pittsburgh Steelers. Touched by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time. And it's ABC's Monday Night Baseball, live from Fenway Park in Boston, Massachusetts. He's fading, looking, looking, looking. He's under the gun. He's fired, he throws. It is. This is baseball, Major League Baseball, and this is Mel Allen. Star Prime podcast. I'm joined as usual with uh, my buddies Mark Hoffman and Bill Hoffman. Jeremy Ruby making sure everything gets. I'm his brother now. Oh, yeah. did I say brother? No. Yeah, yeah, you said Bill, Bill Hoffman. Bill, Just I keep didn't it know. All right, <laughs> Billy <laughs> Hoffman. You're my brother. We lost brother all these years. Like Step brothers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Scott Hoffman, Mark. Hoffman. Call me Mark Mahoney. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> nice. I don't know. I don't know who that guy is. <laughs> I just showed up. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I do know the the podcast's name. It's called Past Our Prime, there you and, go. and we're happy to be here. We're talking about the January 28th, 1974 issue of Sports Illustrated. It is a, it's one of our cultural icons. It's a swimsuit issue, you know. I mean, it goes back into the early 60s. I think 1964 was the first one. So this would be the 10th anniversary of, um, of that issue. And when you see the swimsuit issue, what you want to start the magazine off with is six pages of Marlboro ads, <laughs> well, <laughs> followed or- by the Aetna Health. So, so you, you know, you, you see the, the, the gal on the yeah. cover, mm-hmm. and then go start smoking. Yes. Well, well here's the most amazing <laughs> thing. smoking. The swimsuit issue doesn't even start till page 58. No, yeah. it's toward and the it's end only, of the magazine. It's only seven pages long, yeah. and then they do an article like on the photographer. And it's like later. I mean, the whole magazine but, today is the swimsuit right. issue. You but know? Mark, didn't yeah. didn't the article on the on the photographer was like longer than the, the yes, article exactly, on the girl? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. like, that's it. It was. It was. Um, but they do start with a letter to the publisher, which is about something about like, oh, if you've got the midwinter blues, then you know, go look at you know, girls in bikinis. And it, I I tell you, I kid you not. Not that I didn't enjoy the the swimsuit issues as a, as a younger person. But even as a kid, I didn't understand what the hell Sports yeah. Illustrated was yeah. doing because 51 weeks out of the year, it's it's Muhammad Ali, mm-hmm. it's Bill Walton, it's Pete Rose, it's Cheryl Teagues. Yeah, when, but when I was a, when I was a young kid, they just got in the swimsuit because I didn't care about girls at a certain point. They just got in the way. Yeah, I kept thinking, okay, yeah, let's let's get more sports right? things. Yeah, right. No, no, no. I, I looked forward to that issue every year. As yeah, a kid. I'm sure you I did. Should have known, yeah. weirdo. <laughs> you, uh, that's I'm, my brother for you. <laughs> <laughs> what did mom say about him? <laughs> Mark, get out of the bathroom. I've got to go, mom. Uh, now, um, on a m- serious note, and I and I am 
completely serious here. Um, this issue had a woman by the name of Ann Simonton on the cover. Um, she was 21 years old when the, uh, when the photo shoot took place, but two years earlier, this young woman was brutally attacked at Knife Point. Um, I hate to segue like this from, um, but I think there's no delicate way of saying this. She was, she was raped. She was 19 years old and in, and in college. And not that this wouldn't hit home to anybody, but the three of us all have daughters. Mm -hmm. Two of us are 19 years old and in college. And, um, I mean, obviously it had a incredible um, impact on, on Anne's life. She ended up becoming... Um, a, a pretty much a, a feminist and started a, a, some groups that were basically against um, this kind of a of an issue, swimsuit issue, um, that they objectified women and agree or disagree with her on, on her position. Um, she certainly tried to turn a, a horrific moment of her life and, and, and make a difference um, one way or the other, and, and for that you have to tip your hat because um, you can't even fathom what, what um, she had to live through. So um, We will get more, um, talk more about this later on, but for now let's move on and, and we'll stick with um, the f uh, somewhat f a feminist issue here because I'll, I'm showing my feminist side and go to the scorecard um, portion and there was a sports equity bill did you guys see this part mm -hmm. where they were talking about a new education bill now this is according to sports illustrated that could emasculate sports as it would require men's and women's coaches to be paid the same mm -hmm. the men's basketball coach gets paid 23 grand so does the women's basketball coach well 23 grand <laughs> gino aroma <laughs> At UConn now makes $3.1 million a year. In fact, and here's where some equity comes along, thankfully. Don Staley recently signed a seven-year contract with South Carolina at $22.4 million. So at $3.2 million a year, she is the highest paid um, women's basketball coach. Half of all scholarships would have to go to women. Now, the argument then and now was always about football because football is the program that brings in the money. It funds many of the other programs. It funds, you know, uh, women's softball to men's diving to whatever it is. So football is the big money maker. But I thought this was funny because Oklahoma was on probation for football recruiting violations. And they said that with long-range obligations for capital improvements came to $4 million, with 611000 of that going to the football field and a track and golf do dormitory. But the business managers there said that despite three-year losses of $181,000, they would have some room in the budget for the women's athletics in the second semester. Fifteen hundred dollars. Wow! They're talking millions, millions. and millions, yeah. and we're like, "Here's, uh, you know, we got some scraps for you, gals." So you can see where. Well, I'm not going to go back and harp on on what yeah. was happening then, but we have certainly come a long way in in that regard. Uh, in fact, Mark, your wife played. Um, my my wife actually got a college basketball scholarship. 
uh, and, uh, and, and athletics was a, a big part of her life growing up and stuff like that. And in fact, the uh, basketball gym at her high school was built because of the success of the girls' program and not mm -hmm. the boys' program. Uh, but um, I think women's athletics have come a long way. Now, you, there's no women's football, so you can't like equate what the football coach gets because there's not a comparable sport for women. But, for instance, the USC-UCLA game that was recently played at Pauley was between like the two of the top ten teams in the country, and it was a sellout. And so, which was you, unheard of right. even probably ten years ago. Right. So if you put out a product that people want to see, they will come to see it, no matter whether you're a man or you're a woman. But that fifteen hundred, that has to be a joke. I mean, I don't even think in the seventies fifteen hundred was thought. Oh man, we can get a whole gymnasium for that. That I mean, that's that's like the the, the chancellor probably had that in his wallet. Right. Give him that. You know, that's terrible. Yeah. I mean, there's the optics of that fifty years later. But that would have looked bad at the time. You would think. You would I mean, think, but the guy kind of said almost <clears throat> with with pride. Yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah, we've got some money. Not for this <laughs> semester. <laughs> Next semester, we're gonna do a car wash. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and a bake sale. Um, so anyway, wow. that was in the scorecard uh, section. Billy, you have something um, from there as well? Yeah, I'm just a I'm just a disheartened, just beaten down Angels fan. So when I go back and I see the Angels drafted Dan Boone in 1974, or they drafted him in '73, didn't sign him. Drafted him in '74, didn't sign him. Drafted him again in 1976, and finally signed him. Oh, yeah, love that guy. Took him three times to sign him. They released him three years later. And then he went to San Diego and had a pretty decent two, three years. Nice. I'm sorry, man. I, that's just that's just from my angel stuff. Every time I see that, I shake my head. Did they not? Was Davy Crockett not available? They tried to get him. They tried <laughs> to get him. Yeah. But it's so funny because they, they were talking about how Major League Baseball free agency isn't as big as the other sports, which is so yeah. laughable now. Now, yeah. yeah. And they're talking about the Indians signing James Baby. Fine. That was a yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I always love um, in in this section. They always have a, a usually five or six quotes, and one of them mm -hmm. is usually pretty funny. And I guess in the early seventies, we were having. I mean, seems like we have been having it in this country for forever. An energy crisis. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Tad Potter, the majority <laughs> st uh, stockholder of the Penguins, who were apparently a really bad NHL mm -hmm. team back then. Um, said, I got the feeling the players think the energy crisis means they only give 85%. <laughs> <laughs> so, very good for Tad. Very good. Um, the story of the week um, at this time, 50 years ago, was, and, and it was the story every week, because it was like, I can only imagine, because I was only five, that... Um, Every week, people wanted to know, you know, you'd go to bed late in the East Coast. Did UCLA win last mm -hmm. night? Did UCLA win last night? And the answer, 88 times in a row, was yes. Um, they lost in 1971 at Notre Dame. And that was the last loss be before losing again after 88 straight wins again at Notre Dame. So UCLA basketball fans, if you hate Notre Dame, there's a, a uh, there's your reason for it, but um, just uh, unbelievable. And I'm the only one here that's old enough to have actually remembered watching that mm -hmm. game. I was at my friend Mark Borson's house, and we watched them play Notre Dame, and they led most of the game. They were up, I think, by 17 early in the second half. They were up by 11 with three and a half minutes to go, and then they didn't score again. 
uncharacteristic turnovers, missed shots. Notre Dame comes back, grabs a 71-70 lead. They score the last 12 points. But UCLA gets the ball back. And I think they must have had five shots at the basket. Bill From Walton, close range. Right. Yeah. Bill Walton missed a bank shot that he never did. There were a couple tippins that didn't go in. And they lost 71-70. to And to me, it was a karma thing because we talked about how the streak kind of started after they lost to Austin Carr and Notre Dame in 71. But two years later, UCLA broke the all-time winning streak that the University of San Francisco had held mm -hmm. by winning at Notre Dame in 73. That was win number 61. And then a year later, the streak ends. So those three games, to me, there was a symmetry about them and a karma feeling of why perhaps the winning streak should end there at, at South Bend, Indiana. I just take it that, that uh, just that thought of a team winning 88 straight games. I get that they lost to Notre Dame, and it was terrible at the time. 88 straight wins. I, I, that, that is mind-blowing. If that happened nowadays in any sport, it would be plastered everywhere. And the thing that with UCLA doing that and with the amazing players they had, I mean, obviously you watch the game, just – I, I just I can't get over that number because it doesn't seem real. Well, you you know you hate to say that certain things. Oh, that record will never be broken. But with the way that the college rules are, where basically you have a new team every year, especially if you're a great team, mm -hmm. you could have a team go undefeated. That wouldn't surprise me. But if you have a team that's that good, those players aren't coming back the next year. Right. right. Back then they would play they, mostly all four years. Right. So how are you going to get? Basically, yep. three seasons yep. in a row of, of great yep. undefeated talent. It doesn't. I just yep. don't see that record being broken. And the one thing, mm -hmm. too, about the Notre Dame game that people forget, one week after that streak ended and they lost to Notre Dame, they hosted them at Pauley seven mm -hmm. days later, mm -hmm. and they beat them by 19 points in that game. You said. And blew them out early. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Um, I thought this was interesting, though, and to his credit, Digger Phelps, the coach at Notre Dame, it was his third season, he had his team practice cutting down the nets prior to the game. He mm -hmm. wanted to get into their head that this was a possibility because I, I think of it uh, kind of like Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, the best chance someone had against Mike Tyson losing when he was in his prime was that he didn't show up. Once he got into the ring, it was over. And that was the case a lot of times when UCLA came onto the court. They looked at these guys. They knew they were overmatched. The game was over. And Digger Phelps wanted them to go, no, it's not over. We can play with these guys. That's that jersey. When UCLA, that jersey. Right. Just intimidated kids when they went on the court. Absolutely. Well, well the whole UCLA dynasty that was interesting, it started with Walt Hazard and Gail Goodrich, they won one back-to-back titles. Then the no freshman rule, so Lou Alcindor cannot play that first year. They didn't win. And then they started the streak where they won three more with Lou. And then when he went to the NBA, everyone said, okay, now UCLA's going to get their up-and-comings. Alcindor's gone. They're going to start losing games. There's going to be a new championship team. But the um, Sydney Wicks, Curtis Rowe teams kept winning. And, and I mean, UCLA won seven titles in a row. 10 and 12 years. It was just, it was just it amazing. It will never be replicated. No, it can't. I mean, 60 and 0. It, 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 I mean, there were the UCLA records are, are just, they're, they're mind boggling because there are certain things, you know, you look back of records of like, you think of baseball, Cy Young throwing whatever 500 wins or something like that. But you just, when I think of things like UCLA and these records are just, I just, my mouth's. Well, agape. there was one common thing yeah. through all of that, and that was Coach Wooden, right. who. Yeah. 
is universally uh, beloved and respected. Um, and, and the thing that I think um, is so telling about him is how much his players loved that man. Uh -huh. So, and the other coach on the other side, Digger Phelps. Like I said, it was his third season. He takes over for Notre Dame. He goes six and twenty his first season, eighteen and twelve the next season. This year they were ready. They finished twenty six and three. It was his best season in the twenty years he had at Notre Dame. He never won a national championship then, but Notre Dame was always a tough win, not just for UCLA but anyone during yeah. Digger Phelps's um, tenure. Uh, one of the one of the better coaches of the 70s and 80s, and then went on to become a broadcaster for years and years. So a great moment for Notre Dame. The The streak's going to have to come to an end at some point. And in some ways, you don't want it to come, um, no offense, but in Pullman. Or, you know what I mean? Like, to have it end at Notre yeah. Dame three years after having it ended at Notre Dame, somewhat poetic. Nationally televised. Yeah, that's right. The whole that's thing. right. Yeah. The, the funny story is that when they lost to Notre Dame in 71 – to Austin Carr, I had this feeling they were going to lose the game. And as a UCLA fan, I couldn't bear to think about that. So I refused to watch the game. So I just stayed in my room. And my dad was knocking on the door and go, hey, uh, Notre Dame's up by five right now with four minutes to go in the game. And I go, yeah. dad, don't tell me any of this. I don't want to hear this. And he kept coming in, kept coming in, telling me, oh, they're down by three now. And I'm like, dad. And then finally he goes, oh, they lost. And I said, thanks a lot. That's just the way God. dad was. Though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> by the chance, I'd probably do the same thing. Yeah. Now, Mark, how did you become such a big UCLA fan? I mean, you were in Chicago. It's so weird. I don't know if I should tell it, but I moved from Chicago to L.A. I'm over at my cousin's house. My uncle runs up to me and goes, UCLA is playing USC. They're playing USC. It's a big game. It was the football game of the century, number one against number two, O.J. Simpson, Gary Beban. And I go, I don't know. Who are they? And they go, well, it's the USC Trojans. And growing up in Chicago, my aunt was from Detroit, brainwashed me. I was a Tigers fan. I go, ah, Trojans, Tigers kind of sounds the same. All right, I'll root for the Trojans. And then I asked, what colors do they wear? I go, well, the Trojans are red and yellow, and the Bruins are blue and gold. Oh, red and yellow, that sucks. Now I'm a UCLA fan. Wow. To this day, wow. had the UC system adopted red and gold and not blue and gold, I might be a Trojan fan. Really weird. But lived and died UCLA sports ever since. Wow. Yeah. yeah. A lot of dying lately. Yeah. <laughs> not women's basketball. A lot of dying. Yeah. Not women's basketball. Baseball Brings program, it. good. Nice. Soccer, yeah. Yeah. gymnastics. 70 to 69. UCLA's 88 game winning streak in immediate jeopardy now. You know, Lou Alcindor, uh, uh, Kareem Abdul Jabbar, as we now know him, was 88 and 2 in college. Only one player in NCAA history has a better record 89 and 1. Who could that, that be? That player, that of course, was also a <laughs> UCLA Bruin. And it was Larry Farmer. And Farmer has a book out that was published in February of 2023 by Santa Monica Press called Rule of a Lifetime, Larry Farmer and the UCLA Bruins. And look at this. Larry is joining us now. Larry, thank you. Thank you for coming on the Pastor Prime podcast. Oh, my pleasure. I'm excited about it. Well, I'm going to take you down a level just a little bit, Larry, because we're, we're going to be that proverbial parent that has a kid that goes all through high school and gets nothing but straight A's. And then we're going to talk about the B minus that they got, because we were just talking about uh, January 1974 at Notre Dame. Does that one still sting for you guys? 
It, it absolutely does. You know, there I, I was a sophomore at UCLA on the same team with Sidney Wicks, Curtis Rose, Steve Patterson. And we'd gone to South Bend. We had won, I believe it was 12 games in a row uh, that season. And we got beat in South Bend um, by Austin Carr, who scored 46 points. And that's where the 88-game win streak started. So not only did it end in 1974 on that date that you just mentioned that will live in infamy, but it also started there. So I kind of bookended it. I was a graduate assistant on Coach Wooden's staff when the streak ended, but I was a sophomore when it began, and they both hurt. <laughs> what What do you remember most about that that game in '74? I watched the game on television from Los Angeles like everybody else. And, you know, I had been uh, at practice every day uh, as, a, as an assistant, a graduate assistant coach. And so all of the events leading up to that game, I thought it would just be another routine event. You know, we go back to Notre Dame. Uh, the game was going to be on national television. Uh, it would be a tough game. It usually was back there. But we would go back there, handle our business, and then after that game, you know, you would uh, either resume or start uh, open conference. And I just remember, as I watched the game, uh, it went purely as I thought it would. We controlled the tempo. We controlled the game. Late in the game, we had a lead. And I, like everybody else, did not expect a complete collapse. 34, 33, 32, 31. That's Clay. where we went, was it the last three, half, four minutes uh, without scoring a basket? And I'd never seen that. I'd never seen that at UCLA, uh, much less I'd never seen it that year with that team. And when the game ended, when the horned sound and all of the Notre Dame fans rushed the court, I remember sitting there watching the game on television, and I was in shock. I mean, I was literally in shock. I didn't believe that I'd seen what I had just seen, that the streak was over and we had gotten beat uh, in South Bend. You were part of 75 of those 88 wins in a row. How much pride did you take in the fact that that longevity of a streak like that? Well, you know, you, you think that it will eventually come to an end. I, you know, I didn't know when. And so because I was there when it started and, you know, I was on the team that broke USF's 60-game win streak, you know, the Bill Russell, uh, Casey Jones, USF uh, college team that had won 60 in a row, uh, you know, I had a lot invested in that, as did everybody uh, that played during that era. And, again, you knew it would happen eventually, but I had no suspicion that it would happen in South Bend, uh, you know, we were playing well during that game. Well, we were playing like we had played in all the games leading up to that game. You know, we were undefeated going there. Um, and it was typical UCLA basketball. But 
um, I was in shock. I, I was literally in shock. And I felt like a piece of me had um, had been destroyed. I think most of us did. It's like, I, how did this happen? <laughs> and it was just one game. You know, you play three seasons under uh, under Wooden, I'm assuming, because as a freshman, mm -hmm. you couldn't play with the varsity team. And as a sophomore, you guys really struggle because you went 29-1 and one, <laughs> winning a national title. Uh, the next two seasons, you go 60-0 and 0 and win two more titles. You never lost a conference game. That's, That's just amazing. How, how were you guys able to not take winning for granted? You have to credit Coach Wooden with, with all of that. You know, it, it, it's become a, you know, sports cliche where you say, you know, we, we, we play one game at a time or we don't look past anybody. Well, that was our culture. You know, Co Coach Wooden, during the course of, of a week of practice, Coach Wooden would never mention our opponent's name. He would always talk about how much more important it was to be concerned about what we were going to do uh, and not the opponent so the emphasis on our preparation every week was on ucla and not our opponent uh, guys there were literally times where i didn't know who our next opponent was going to be um because i didn't read the newspaper and coach wooden would never bring up the other team um during the course of practice <laughs> now, you know, you'd always know play SC or Notre Dame or, you know, any of the games that were going to be on national television because of all of the hype that would go on before. But during the course of the average week, again, all of our focus was placed on us. And we had what you would call a competitive atmosphere in practice, you know, not a comparison. So we were never talking about um, how we were going to match up against anybody else. You know, for two straight years, we were ranked the number one team in the country. And when we would come in after a, a weekend of success, having, you know, beaten the two opponents the week before, Monday would come in and it would be business as usual. We would get right back to the fundamentals, our conditioning and teamwork. And it would be as if nothing had happened, nothing had transpired the week before. And so Coach Wooden really kept us grounded in the belief that you know, we determined our own fate. He never used the word winning. He never talked about win streaks. Um, and it was really through him that I think it kept us not only motivated, but it kind of kept us in check so we never thought we were better than we really were. Larry, this is Bill Mahoney. I, I, reading your book, fantastic. I just, I couldn't put it down. Thank but the you. One th the one thing that I took from it was your relationship with John Wooden. I mean, it, 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 it superseded basketball. Tell me about that. You know, when, when you, when you're, when you play for coach, it was a typical player coach relationship. You know, I, I respected him. You know, I obviously liked him a lot more when I got to shoot the ball a few more times. <laughs> it's funny how that, how that right. works. And you know, when you play with guys like Henry Bibby or Bill Walton or Jamal Wilkes, you know, there are opportunities for them to shoot it a few more times than you do. But, you know, I had that typical player coach's relationship with them. Um, respect. Um, you know, I'd get angry if I thought that, you know, I wasn't getting to, to play my game the way I wanted to play it. But I always trusted him. And I knew that if I did exactly what he told me to do on the court, um, that my minutes would, uh, you know, I would have an opportunity to play and my minutes would be 
be what I expected. And so, you know, we had a very good player-coaches relationship. My senior year, when he made me the captain of the team, it led me to believe that, you know, he saw my value beyond uh, what I was doing, you know, on the court. Um, because I knew that he held anybody that he would put, uh, he would place in the position of being the team captain. Um, that was a role uh, that Coach Wooden really didn't hand out easily. And he had to have a lot of respect for you to give you that title. So that changed our relationship. In my, in my mind, it changed our relationship because I, I thought then that he respected me a lot more as a person. Now, see, he already had respected me. I just wasn't aware of it until he named me captain. And then like any relationship, you know, once I graduated from UCLA and started coaching, it was amazing how much smarter <laughs> Coach Wooden became to me when all of those little things that he would say to us during practice um, started to become important. Um, they became really important when I started my family. Um, those life lessons that he was saying, those little sayings that he had, you know, it's amazing how much can be accomplished when no one's concerned over who gets the credit. Um, things turn out best for the people that make the best out of the way things turn out. He would say those things, you know, in practice, and you'd hear him go in one ear and out the other. Then all of a sudden you start coaching or you start a family and you start relying on some of those things. Hey, that was pretty smart, coach. And so as I grew up, as I got older, my relationship with him changed. And it went from being a player coach to actually being really good friends where I could confide in coach. I could talk to him. I could talk to him about anything. And I could have always done that when I played for him. I never took advantage of that because, again, you know, there was that respect. There was probably a little bit of fear. And there was always that gap, I guess, that you have to have to have a successful player-coach relationship. Well, once I became a, 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 an adult and assistant coach, all of that got thrown out the window. And I wound up having a great relationship with Coach Wooden. The one thing I was going to say is the, the one thread in the book that I noticed between your father, Coach Wooden, and even Sam Gilbert, there was a common thread, and that was hard work. Hard work was the key to success in whatever you did. Absolutely. You know, they, the, in, in Coach Wooden's pyramid of success, the two cornerstones, one is enthusiasm and the other is industriousness. You know, enjoy what you do and then work hard and work smartly. And the three people that you just mentioned were always those three people that preached that to me. You know, I, I coached basketball for 44 years before I retired. And, you know, I look back and it, it was like I never worked a day in my life because I really enjoyed what I was doing. Um, but working hard, understanding what it takes to get better each and every day. And, you know, this again goes back to the question, how did Coach Wooden keep teams that weren't losing but were winning all the time, keep us grounded? Um, his approach of working hard every day and just getting a little bit better every day, you know, the focus being on the team and not the individual, you know, all of those things were life lessons for me. And so being surrounded by people that were of influence in my life, that preached hard work, um, enjoying what you do, but work smartly, uh, that really impacted my life. And I tried to pass those messages along throughout my coaching career. Hey, Larry, uh, you know, the 60s and 70s were a, a very tumultuous time in our country for race relations in particular. Mm -hmm. How how was was Coach Wooden 
able to connect. He seems like this professorial, kind of meek, quiet man. And yet he's able to connect with young men, young, young black men specifically. How is he able to do that? You know, I think because of his understanding of, of human nature and people, um, you know, Coach Wooden had the respect of all of the players on the team because he practiced what he preached. And that gave you, uh, to a degree, an instant respect for him. You know, little things like, you know, if he said, you know, be prepared and, and be ready to work hard. Well, you know, he came into practice every day with that three by five card, and he had spent a couple of hours every day preparing that practice. He was always early. So he kind of set the example. In our first team meeting, Coach Wooden would always talk about the focus during the season being on the team, but he never took away our ability to be individuals. You know, as you mentioned, you know, that time in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, you know, you had the civil rights movement, you had Vietnam. There were all kinds of social things that were going on in America. America was changing. And Coach Wooden was smart enough to understand those changes. Um, he was in the midst of that because his players were in the midst of it. But he asked us to focus during the season on the reason that we were at UCLA, which was to get an education and to play basketball. And then in the offseason, where our views politically wouldn't uh, reflect directly on the basketball program, we were free to be who we wanted to be or who we needed to be. And I think it was because of his ability to allow us to be ourselves, to understand what was going on, you know, socially, culturally in America. Um, and really and truly, I, I, we didn't know if whether he agreed with our stand or not, but his, his ability to, to tell us that he, he understood and he would allow us the freedom, because um, he recruited a bunch of really bright guys to pursue you know, whatever we believed in. Um, I think that was the, the marriage that he juggled, um, you know, during that period of time. Uh, people don't, a lot of people don't remember that the the Olympics that were held in Mexico City, um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, then Luau Sindor, boycotted those Olympics. So you had the best player in the world not competing in the uh, 66 Olympics. Well, you know, or 68 Olympics. Well, why didn't he do it? Well, he didn't feel that he should. And when he expressed his feelings to Coach Wooden, Coach Wooden agreed with him. And so Kareem didn't go. So he was that kind of a person. He was that kind of coach. You know, uh, it's it's legendary about, you know, Bill Walton and some of the trouble that Bill got into. <laughs> but he had the freedom to be himself. And I think that's one of the um, unique things about Coach Wooden and how he dealt with his players during that very tumultuous time. I graduated UCLA, and when I think about UCLA, I think of Jackie Robinson, Rayford Johnson, Arthur Ashe, Kareem, um, Woody Strode, and yet it wasn't until 1981 when you were named the head coach that was the first time that an African-American coached any sports team at UCLA. What did that mean to you? You know, at, at, at the time, it was a little bit, it, well, it was overwhelming for a number of reasons, <laughs> to say the least. Well, you uh, were 30. 30. Yeah. <laughs> Taking the trash out is overwhelming at 30. <laughs> you know, when I, when I really let that sink in, and it wasn't until many, many years later, um, I was 12 years removed 
from my recruiting visit to UCLA. Mm -hmm. The office that I went into when I sat down on, on the Sunday, my final Sunday on my recruiting visit to UCLA, when I sat in Coach Wooden's office and visited with him about why I should come to UCLA, 12 years later, that was my office. That still blows my mind. It really does. But, you know, I knew I had a responsibility, and, and the responsibility was, one, Coach Wynn was very instrumental in, of course, me getting that position. And I knew that in getting the head coaching job at UCLA, uh, it went with a lot of responsibilities. You know, not to mention the fact that I had been a player and gone 89-1 and won and played during, you know, arguably the most successful period of time in the history of college basketball. So I, I knew that there, there were, that there was that expectation. Then there was the way that, you know, Coach Wooden had us conduct ourselves off the court, um, how we represented the university, our families. Then you combine that with the fact that I was 30-year-old and I was an African-American. African-Americans to that point in, in Division I college basketball, when you look back, you had Fred Snowden at Arizona. You had George Raveling at Washington. You had John Thompson at Georgetown. You had John Chaney at Temple. And so there were a handful of black coaches that had become head coaches. But those guys were all given programs that needed to be built, that, needed, that were struggling. And, um, you know, lo and behold, because of the success that they had, all of a sudden, I was given, I was hired at UCLA, a program that definitely wasn't struggling nor had it been struggling. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was quite unique. Um, again, when I look back at it, you know, UCLA was very progressive in how they dealt with social norms um, and how they changed many things. You know, out of all the great people you mentioned, you know, we have a building um, named on campus after Dr. Ralph Bunch, you know, the uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner. And um, so I did take that very seriously and I knew that based on how I handled myself on and off the court, that I could also be a stepping stone, just like those four coaches that I named, because of the jobs that they had done, it allowed me to have the opportunity at UCLA. I knew that I had a big enough spotlight on me that if I could be successful, I could open doors uh, for other people of color. Larry, um, Bill Walton wrote the foreword to the uh, to your book. Once again, role of a lifetime, Larry Farmer and the UCLA Bruins. We know um, Bill is kind of a zany guy. This persona that he has. We also know what a great college and NBA player he was. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with the uh, the big redhead. Yeah, yeah, Bill. I love Bill. Needless to say, yeah. Uh, you know when when we were teammates, you had no idea. But well, the first time I ever played with him. I had no idea what to expect. Um, you know, he was almost seven foot tall. You know, he was kind of gangly. And, you know, after one or two practices, you realize that this guy was special. You know, he was quick. He was agile. He could jump. He could block shots. He could score the ball. And, you know, his, his it was almost intoxicating to watch the way he played because even in practice, you know, there was a, a, a love for the game. There was an eagerness. There was an excitement. There was an enthusiasm. And as much as you thought you were bringing that to practice, you know, again, I was one year older. So when Bill was a sophomore, his first year on the varsity, I was a junior. And for a young guy coming in to varsity for the first time, 
there was a veteran quality to him and that youthful enthusiasm that he brought really kind of perked up things. So from a player standpoint, you, you're immediately impressed by, by, you know, his ability. As we became friends and got to know each other, you know, Bill's a smart guy. He's a fun loving guy. And when you, when you, then they're the best teammate in the world. When you watch him on TV these days, he's, you know, I laugh because I realize, you know, that's Bill and that's his stick. And if people you either love or hate him, I happen to love him. But <laughs> you talk about a quality person who would give you the shirt off his back. I've never asked Bill for anything that Bill hadn't given me. Um, when I played with Bill, um, it was, and Jamal to that, to that matter, or any of the guys at UCLA. You know, I wanted to make sure that I did my job and I never let those guys down. And I had that kind of respect uh, for him particularly. But, you know, our friendship grew as we became um, teammates in our careers um, at UCLA. Uh, went through those two years. We never lost a game as teammates. And then we became much better friends after I graduated and Bill graduated and we went on to, you know, pursue our lives and the times we would get back together, usually something involving UCLA. It was amazing the bond of the, the friendship, the brotherhood uh, that we all had, but me and Bill, uh, at least for me specifically. And so um, I love the redhead. He, uh, he's bright, he's charming, he's funny, you know, and we get to see all those things. And as I said, you talk about a great teammate. He was great in the locker room. He was Great at his part, and when he throw a party for you, um, I just love him. But when you talk about that, you say about the Bill Walton being zany and fun. What was he like though when he turned it on on the court? Well, I mentioned this in the book. We had only played, I think it was three or four games together. This is my junior year. This was the season that we went thirty and zero, and our average win margin, which is still a record today was 30.3 points per game. <laughs> Let that sink in. We beat everybody we played by a margin of 30.3 points per game. And we're about three games into this season, three or four games. We're warming up, and Bill comes over to me and Jamal during warm-ups, kind of pulls us aside, and he says, look, guys, you know, we got a great fast break, but you guys are getting in my way when I go after the defensive rebound." So this is what I want you to do. I want you to block out your guys. I'll get the rebound. And when I get the rebound, then I want you guys to just sprint the lanes. And then you guys can score at the other end. So <laughs> I'm looking at Jamal. Jamal's looking at me. And it's like, well, you know, it's fine with me. But, you know, nobody's cleared this with Coach Wooden. And so, lo and behold, I forget who we were playing. But the ball goes up. And I block out my man. Jamal hits his. And here goes Bill. And, you know, and Bill's an exceptional rebounder. He would get two hands on the ball. And while he was still in the air, he would be tucking the ball, getting it in, in, a, in, a, in a position of strength. And he would turn his head. So before he would land on the floor, he would already know where he was going to throw that outlet pass. And then that ball would be out of his hands. And we had a step or to two steps of, of an advantage um, on our fast break before the, the offense now going to defense could um, – could react our opponent and so on this one particular play when the ball hit the rim and went up Jamal and I took off because we thought Bill was going to get the rebound he didn't and so all of a sudden you know we're at half court the guards have gotten wide for the outlet pass and it's Bill in there one against five 
And so, uh, needless to say, Coach Wood was not pleased with us and told us not to leak. And the reason I tell you that story is, you know, Bill was kind of a coach on the floor. And because of, of his basketball intellect, he would see things like that. You know, he could he, he, he thought more like a point guard than he did a center. He, he was more of an action guy than a reaction guy. And you expect more of a reaction out of, out of your, your center. And so because of his intellect, there were always things that he did that made my job easier. I'll tell you one more quick story. Coach Wooden would often put me on the best perimeter player on the other team. You know, for example, I guarded uh, Ed Ratliff, uh, Ernie D. Gregorio, uh, uh, Phil Smith. You know, a lot of my matchups were against smaller guys. I was fairly quick and pretty disciplined defensively. But I always knew I could gamble a little bit mm. because if I got beat and the guy that I was guarding drove to the basket, well, I would go through the motions of, of staying in the play and chasing him down. But if I followed you to Bill, you were going to get your block, your shot blocked or changed. He was going to get the ball. He was going to start the fast break. And I was going to be the hero because my guy didn't score on so he made my job defensively and everybody's job defensively very, very easy. How did you get to UCLA? Because you grew up in Denver and you weren't initially in high school this superstar player at all. Talk about that journey to get to Westwood. You talk about divine intervention. I watched UCLA play Houston in a game that's called, that's been referred to as the game of the century. I'm a junior in high school. I'm not yet even a starter on my junior varsity team. And the head coach at my high school in Colorado, Al Oviatt, had told us that there was going to be this big-time college basketball game that was going to come on. He encouraged all the guys on the team to watch it so we could see how basketball was supposed to be played. Now, I knew Lou Alcindor was, and, you know, in reading the articles in all the basketball magazines that had come out, I knew about Coach Wooden, but I'd never seen them play. I'd never seen them play. And so sitting in, in the uh, den in Cole, Colorado, I watched UCLA play Houston. Elvin Hayes goes off in the game, and Houston actually winds up beating UCLA. They were ranked the number one and number two teams in the country. First time there had been a college basketball game, come on in prime time, uh, that wasn't an NCAA tournament game. And there was something about those four letters. There was something about watching uh, Lou Alcindor and Mike Warren and Lucius Allen. There was something about that team that just struck me. And when UCLA lost that game, it was almost like I was a member of the team and I'd lost. Mm. And my mom and dad who were sitting in the den with me because uh, I talked them into watching the game with me. When the game ended, I turned to them and I said, I'm going to play at UCLA. Of course, there was silence. <laughs> you know, my parents did once. Are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? Did you just see this? And uh, But they didn't. And my father finally broke the silence. He said, you know, if you ever want to be that good, you're going to have to work really hard. Well, that became my goal. And it's a really long story. You got to read the book as to all of the little things that happened. But through my academic advisor, and writing letters, uh, writing a letter uh, to UCLA, but writing letters to about 25 different schools um, and sending out tape and timing. Uh, UCLA recruited me late in, in the, uh, during my senior year. Denny Crum called me and said, hey, you, 
we saw your tape. We see your transcript. Um, you think you're good enough to play at UCLA? And of course, I said, yes, I think I'm good enough. <laughs> and I had no idea if I was ever going to be good enough to play at UCLA. But uh, through divine intervention, I wound up getting recruited late in my senior year and then signing uh, to play basketball for Coach Wooden. And indeed you were. Uh, I, I've got I got to ask this, Larry. <laughs> Years later, you got to coach under Larry Brown. Yes. And he used a statement. I think, what was it? He needed you to, uh, let me look here for a second. I gotta read We've got to use the power. Can you explain <laughs> what that meant? <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, that was really, um, that was funny. We're, we're playing, <laughs> we're playing the ball and, uh, they had Mark McGuire, they had a great team. And, uh, you know, Coach Brown, Hall of Fame coach, great basketball mind, one of the greatest coaches and people that I that I had the privilege of, of, of working for. And this was a first for me. You know, I, I, I come out of a completely uh, different school of coaching. And, you know, Coach Brown, he was, you know, flashy, and he had the NBA and ABA resume. Anyway, we needed a stop. We needed to get a defensive stop. We're at that point in the game. It was late where, you know, we could win this thing if we could just have a possession where we didn't allow uh, DePaul to score. They got the great Ray Meyer coaching. And uh, out of the clear blue sky, DePaul's getting ready to inbound the ball, and Coach Brown tells uh, Kevin O'Connor and I, we're the two assistants, that we got to use the power, this mystical um, energy that's going to help our team get this stop. Now, you know, Coach Wooden was very superstitious. So, you know, being around somebody that might be a little superstitious was not anything new to me, but this was new to me. And so, um, you know, without being too graphic, there was, he, he, he said that, you know, we needed to hold on <laughs> to, to, uh, to a, a private part of our body, a testicle, and to squeeze it and if we did that, we would invoke the power. Um, now, I don't know exactly what this power was, but we would invoke a power that would then allow us to play great defense uh, on that possession to get a stop. So you got to imagine I'm sitting here, what? Power? What is that? So they're both Kevin and, and because apparently Kevin was onto this and he kind of knew what that was. We never used it all year. And this is in the postseason. So we're sitting there and, they tell me what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, Coach Brown is still up now because the game's going on. Uh, DePaul's advancing the ball up the court. So all of this is happening very rapidly. So I lean over and I'm doing what they're time squeezing. The, the test, I'm, I'm doing what Coach Brown asked me to do. Well, if we're there. We're playing pretty good defense. Hey, this might work after all. Paul gets up a shot and they miss and they get the offensive rebound. Now, there's no shot clock in those days. So, you know, this possession could last 30 seconds. You know, it could last three minutes. And they get the offensive rebound, and they reset. Here I am, and I'm sitting there still in this position. We're still invoking the power. And so they reset. Coach Brown is still standing up. He looks over at me and Kevin. He goes, sorry, guys, but he didn't tell us to stop using it. And, uh, you know, it's funny now. They shot the ball and missed, and we did get the defensive rebound, so it did work. Yes. <laughs> yes. You have to just save it for the right moment, though. <laughs> <laughs> we never used it again, but yeah. it worked. 
time that we did use it. And you never invoked it at any of your other college stops, just just for you see the other coaches look on their face. I, I, you know what? I, I I'm coaching high school basketball now. I might think about doing that. <laughs> Very good. Hey, hey, coach, we do a little segment here called Fifty Fifty. It's a trivia thing. I give you a fifty percent chance of getting this trivia question right from 50 years ago now this is sort oh. of an honor of your you had a little you dabble a little bit in tv and film fast break white shadow there was, you did it a little dabbling in that area so this trivia question relates to that there was a television show on 50 years ago called manix i don't know if you remember it mike connors yes. was a private detective true or false the lead mike connors played basketball at ucla true you are correct <laughs> Very good. Okay, I got a bonus one. Hold for on, you. you didn't pause at all. Yeah, so he you, knew. you he had knew. to have known that. Have you yeah. met? Uh, did you ever meet Mike Connors? I did, and, and that's why I knew it. That's why it was easy for me to answer that question so quickly. My my mom and dad actually came out to visit uh, me at UCLA uh, when I was uh, uh, one of the years, uh, one of the three years that I was the head coach, and um, um, through an alumni who knew um, uh, Mike Connors. My parents were big uh, uh, Mannix fans. And mm. so we were actually, I was actually able to drive them to the set. And so they could watch one of the uh, tapings. And so then they got to meet uh, uh, the stars of the show, um, nice. uh, Chuck Connors. And then I forget the gal's name that played his um, uh, his Gail Fisher. Gail but, Fisher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and mom and they were so excited. And, and he mentioned that to me at the time that he uh, he had played basketball at UCLA. So, yeah, I did know that. Okay, so here's a bonus one. Just see if you get this one. There was an right. episode of Mannix that was shot maybe a few years earlier, and there were two former Bruin legend basketball players that made cameos on that episode. Any idea who those two players were? Now, that I don't know, but if, if, if my – who I would guess that one of them could have been Mike Warren only because, you know, he became a, a terrific actor. And the only other person that I would just guess, I, 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 I would guess might be Lou Alcindor. You are right on one of them. Lou Alcindor was one of the guests on the show. Mike Warren was a really good guest, but it wasn't Mike. Gail Goodrich was the other oh, one. Oh, wow. Yes, it was an episode like, I don't know, 1971, if you look it up on IMDb. But yeah, that, that's my trivia for the day. Awesome. Nice. Nice. <laughs> wow. And Stumped for getting it right, Larry, we will let you go. <laughs> that is that is uh, the only um, gifts we have. A parting gift is, is saying goodbye. Thank you. But I can't thank you enough for uh, for your time today. It was so fun. Uh, this trip down memory lane. I'm glad we got yeah. the the loss to Notre Dame out of the way early, and then talked about nothing but good times at UCLA. Um, thank you very much, and um, good luck with the book. The book once again is Roll of a Lifetime, Larry Farmer. Mm -hmm. And the Bruins. Thank you, Larry. Oh, thank you, guys. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, man, that was a side of Larry Farmer that, um, you know, I was 13 years old when he was named head coach. And, and I, I mean, I didn't think of him as being a 30-year-old. He was just an older guy. And he was he, he played it so kind of close to the vest. You know, he was so um, respectful and stuff. But he's a fun-loving Good, good dude. He he said he was retired. 
I'd, I, I'd run through a wall for that guy right now. Could right? you have met? I thought he was coaching his kid's high school team, maybe. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. he said that, but he yeah. made He said, I, when I retired four whatever years ago, I just right. kept thinking, he's like Pete Carroll of basketball. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, man, he makes me want to get up and go, okay, let's get going. He yeah. was great. I, I think he was the kind of player that really emphasized what John Wynn was about in that you sacrifice some of your personal stats to be a key member of glue guy on the team, which is what he was. Yeah, you're right. A glue guy, which sometimes um, has the connotation mm-hmm. of of being, I mean, and, he, and his book is called Role of a Lifetime. So he was a role player, but he averaged like 12 points a game his senior year. I mean, he was a legit contributor. Mm-hmm. I think the third leading scorer behind Bill and Jamal. So, um, you know, a, a, a legit third option um, like you said, defended their mm-hmm. top mm-hmm. offensive player often, um, and just a you know just a breath of fresh air. But he he played exactly the way Wooden wanted him to, and what he asked him to do. If he didn't want to play that way, he wouldn't be at UCLA. So I think you know, I, and I don't know. I think you were right, Scott. You they they use terms like glue guy as a negative. You need yeah. those guys, and Larry Farmer was obviously vital. To UCLA success. And a glue guy doesn't mean you're bad. A glue guy means you're a talented player, but you're more than just that. You're mentally tough, and you're someone that can really be a calming influence on the rest of your teammates. Well, it's in that sort of, with football, game manager. They use these things as a negative. It's not. It's, it's, you need those guys. Not everyone can score 30 points a game. Right. 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 Hey, I I got one, one number, 89 and one. Thank you. Moving on, let's uh, let's go to the links, and we're going to talk a little golf here. Johnny Miller, what a start he had to to the PGA season. Um, he won the first three tournaments of the of the year. Um, in fact, if you go back to the World Cup in Spain, which was the last thing he played in '73, it was his fourth straight win. Um, of the uh, of him playing three of them being the first um and he was the first person in on the PGA tour history to win mm-hmm. the first three um events of a season and and everyone by all accounts thought that this guy was going to be the next Jack Nicklaus he wasn't that's no that's no knock on him mm-hmm. there was no other Jack Nicklaus that's why he is Jack Nicklaus but uh, a great you know a great career i think he was uh PGA Player of the Year that mm-hmm. year. He uh, he topped the money list, winning eight times and collecting $353,000, which back then was a lot, a lot, a lot of money. But you look at, when you think of Johnny Miller and you see the start that he had, you're right, there were high expectations. But he never won a major championship after the Open Championship in 1976. He finished second at the Masters in 1981. But they said between 76 and 79, he developed the yips. So he really never had that opportunity to be that star and the Nicholas protege or mm-hmm. follow Nicholas's footsteps. I think the hardest thing to do in any sport you do is continued success. Mm-hmm. It is just, it is so difficult just to be successful to, for a small yeah. period of time. And to extend that to, to a, repeat that. It, it's just the hardest, hardest possible thing to do. Yeah. Not just physically, but mentally. I thought this was interesting coming off the heels of talking about John Wooden is that Miller wasn't uh he didn't practice yeah he he basically didn't want he thought his swing mm-hmm. was was basically as good as it was going to get and he thought playing you know rounds of golf that actually mattered was enough but what he did do was he wrote himself notes which is very wooden-esque like he wrote things down like accelerate the whole club 
Get the blade on the ball. Picture the swing. Setup is everything. Take it back. So these mind games that he would carry mm -hmm. along with him on little note cards. And in fact, he would tell his caddy, you know, when he would think of something to make a note of it. And in this, he told the guy, write down, don't rush it. So he had these little mind mm -hmm. games that he would try to, um, because at the time, he didn't need to practice. He was, uh, he was winning pretty frequently. And I love the picture in the article because you were talking about his caddy, Andy Martinez, mm -hmm. and that is some great hair. That, that yes. says 1974 yeah. to me with the... No doubt. Yeah, the hair yeah, and the mustache. And the stash. He had the big yeah. stash. Yeah. 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 Um, Sports Illustrated back then was basically infatuated with track and field. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they, they loved track and field. Mm -hmm. and, and I can only assume, therefore that there was an audience for it. Mm -hmm. um, but you can't go um, more than maybe two or three issues without uh, something on a track and field star. And, and more often than not, someone I have never heard of, and that includes this next guy, Marcello Fiasconaro. Oh, I just butchered. Good. I'm sure yeah. I just butchered. No. His, I should have just called him Marcello Hoffman. That's so <laughs> much easier. More Mahoney. Your oldest <laughs> brother. Your oldest brother. <laughs> um, but he was a weird dude. He was Italian, but he was in South Africa because his dad, I forget what it was. His dad was an Italian opera singer in the Italian Air Force and was shot down in North Africa during World War II. Ended up mm -hmm. in a POW mm -hmm. camp in South Africa. That's where he met his his. Uh, Wife married her, had had his kid. The kid was um, Marcello, who was a a a, a runner, and um, but he was a weird guy. Bill, tell us how he would like you know make entrances to to when he would get out of a car. Well, I just pull these things, weird things. So when they'd. You know when you go up, someone pulls over and you get out of the car? No, no. He didn't wait for the car to stop. He just dove out of the car. But man, you no, but he, he would. You stop he running. would dive head yes, first. Yes roll over, and then leap to his feet. <laughs> I'm here! <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. you know, I mean, I uh, this guy's trying to make, you know, Olympic teams yeah, and really. stuff. What could go wrong jumping out of a moving car? I have no idea. What, what I loved about this is, is he never turned the TV set off day or night because you never know when there'd be a good Western on or something. Because he loved Clint Eastwood. Yeah, he loved that Clint was Eastwood his guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that'd be great, man. Right. Could, well, See, today he'd just be on his phone well, all the yeah. time. The thing that he said, though, that I found interesting, and, and this once again goes back to 50 years, is he didn't want to turn the TV off because back then it took a while yeah. for a TV right. to turn on. Yeah, it had that little... Right? Little, and so, like, yeah. you know, I can remember certain times. Like, you're watching a game and you're, like, waiting. And, it would, mm -hmm. you know, it was only probably what a handful of seconds five ten seconds but yeah tv didn't turn right. on right away it kind of glow a little bit there was a bit. dot there was a dot and then it went yes, and then it would yeah. pop on yeah. you'd hear the audio before you'd see that's the video right. that's you'd right hear and, the audio. and i think i told the story once before where i was watching the cowboys play the niners in the uh this was the 72 playoffs i think and the cowboys were down by 12 with like four minutes to go in the game they said to my cousin, let's just go outside and throw the football. This is over. So we went outside, threw the football, came back in about five minutes later. So I turned the TV back on, <laughs> and I'm waiting for it to, the screen to come. But I can hear the audio, and I hear, and now all the Cowboys have to do is sit on the ball, and the game is over. They win. And I'm like, what the? <laughs> so I missed a great comeback. But. 
Um, next up is something on Boris Spassky. We talked about Boris and Bobby Fischer last week or two weeks ago, and we're not doing it again. So <laughs> he, he looks really excited in his tennis outfit. Yeah, know? yeah. He was uh, there was some other dude he was playing, and Robert um, Byrne. Yeah, they yeah. played. T- they played chess. Someone won. Someone lost. That's that's mm-hmm. pretty much uh, how checkmate. I, I yeah, think there was checkmates, yeah, and yeah. Um, but then. There was a piece done on on someone that nobody knew of back at the time, and now everybody does. His name is Bob Arum, and he was promoting a fight between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, the the rematch of their fight of the century. And uh, Arum went on to become, if not the 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 most prominent successful boxing promoter. Mm. It's either him or Don King. King. They they did not enjoy each other's company, as it turns out. <laughs> I, I talk I talked to Aram a lot when I was at CBS, and, uh-huh. and but looking at the picture here in the magazine, he's obviously much younger yes. than the image yes. I have, yes. like remembering yeah. him and stuff like that. He uh, he ended up being Muhammad Ali's guy, mm-hmm. and many people think that had Frazier won the rematch, that that could have really been detrimental to Aram because he was so invested in Muhammad Ali being successful. Um, but I thought this was interesting. He he met Muhammad Ali through Jim Brown. Um, Jim Brown arranged a meeting between Aram and Muslim leaders. And soon after, Ali converted to Islam and joined main bout uh, promotions, which mm-hmm. was run by Aram. And basically, Aram, I don't want to say rode Muhammad's coattails, but Muhammad being... So successful. Um, well, let's just put it this way. Bob Arum is worth, last I saw, about $320 million. So if he rode his yeah. coattails, he rode them yeah. rather well. It's quite a ride. Yeah. Speaking of fighters, the next one is the Hound and the Hammer. And they're more widely known as the Broad Street Bullies. Um, the Flyers from 74... Um, Bob Hound Kelly and Dave the Hammer Schultz. Billy, you probably know these guys much better than I do. Yeah, all they did was fight. I mean, they could play. I mean, you weren't in the NHL, but I was just thinking that you look at Dave Schultz and Bob Kelly. They had more than, gosh, almost close to 550 penalty minutes in the 1974, 1974 season. I mean, you're basically fighting every time you go out there. And I... I, I I remember seeing Schultz play later on in his career when he was with the Kings and he was still fighting. And you think of those guys, they're both about six, one, six foot, six, one. The one guy that beat them both was five foot nine, 170 yeah. pounds. You yeah. don't, you know, that was a, that was a different world in the NHL back in the day. The, and remember they used to have those brawls, Schultz and them through the whole team, right? Everyone would jump off the bench. It wasn't one, two guys no, squaring no. off. It'd be the, the team, team squaring off. And it was it was basically um, the coach was encouraging yes. this style of play. Yes. They, yes. they were not a good team. No. They were going to shake things up. Yep. yep. And uh, they ended up winning the Stanley they Cup. They did because of Bobby Clark. <laughs> but in that year, they had more than 1,700 penalty minutes. Yeah. I don't know in the NHL today if they're – if they'd have enough players on the to put on the ice, if they had that many penalty right. minutes, but back in those days, the well, Hammer Man. I, I always thought that the movie Slapshot was based on these guys. Yeah. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. It's based on another minor, minor, yeah, minor league, league team. But but it was this era mm-hmm. of hockey. 
that I don't think hockey was ever able to find a right balance because I do think there that that fighting mm-hmm. and that kind of play has a place mm-hmm. in in hockey. Back then, I mean, it would it would it yep. would go into the stands. There would be Mike fights Milbury. with um, yeah, you know, in, with fans. Yeah, I Mike mean, Milbury hit the guy with right, the shoe, right? You know, yeah. um, it 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 kind of got out of not kind of it got out of hand on more than one occasion. But but the, but, uh, but just, in those days they didn't wear helmets either, so right, the guys yeah. were taking you know haymakers to the head. No, and then and, and these guys were you know they they you said Bobby Clark right? Yep. Well, they had a job to do, and that yep. job was to protect Bobby Clark. What do think I think about the NHL? And you look at it. What what happens when there's a fight? Everybody stands up and they start screaming. You're right about that. They haven't found a happy medium. You don't need everyone on the ice, you know, a bloodbath. But sometimes a good fight, the fans, you go to a game, someone starts throwing down and everyone jumps up and starts screaming. So it's always been sort of a fan favorite. They've sort of eliminated most of it. But back in the day, no, it was it was a it was a fight time. So from um, the beast to the beauty. Uh, page 63, and it is the beginning yep. of the swimsuit um, photos. Uh, we won't spend a lot of time on this other than to say that Cheryl Teagues was um, one of the swimsuit models. Mm-hmm. You'd be hard-pressed. I mean, if you were going to say, name a, a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model, she might be the one that yeah. comes to mind more often than anyone else. Christy Brinkley, Cindy Crawford, Kathy Ireland. Um, yeah, I don't know how I, I wrote these down. I didn't know those names just off the top yeah. of my head. No, I wouldn't wouldn't know them. But but Cheryl was on the cover three times. Okay. She was in it nine times, nine, wasn't it? Yeah, I think nine it was times. nine yeah. times. Yeah. Um, and you know that that propelled her career to be you know uh, a, a supermodel. I remember I was watching a little video on some sort of a retrospective of her with this uh, SI swimsuit, and she does a shoot, and the lady comes over and goes. Your swimsuit's on backwards. She goes, it is? So she did like a part of a shoot with everything backwards. And it was actually very funny. Nice. You, when you When you think of Cheryl Teagues and that, they never show you that behind side. the scenes. Yeah. Right. But she was laughing and she goes, it is? And they go, yeah, the, the part around your breasts are supposed to be in front. And then they, they put it the right way and you go, yes, that's it. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. I thought this was funny. At the end of the issue... It's called He Woke Up in the Moor. Did you guys read this? Oh, yeah. This is a jockey named Ralph Nevis riding a horse named Fannikins that broke its spine in an accident and landed on top of Nevis. Two other jockeys came to his aid, finally got the horse off of him. Doctors from the stands at Bay Meadows come out, couldn't find a pulse on Nevis. They announced the crowd to the crowd, stand at attention, and they pronounced him dead. And they wrapped him in a white sheet. That was in May of 36. 37 years later, Ralph Nevis is telling this story. So I'm giving a spoiler alert. He wasn't dead. Um, He's watching film of the race. And he realizes that the horse didn't trip. Two other horses tripped. And Nevis jerked Fannikin so hard to avoid them that it caused Fannikins to fall. And he landed on top of the jockey. So the details to the accident were wrong, but the aftermath is pretty accurate. He was pronounced dead on the track, brought to the hospital where they filled out a death certificate. He awakes in a pitch dark morgue, basically, and starts screaming, but nobody's there to hear him. So he does what anyone would do. He 
with hospital gowns on, runs out of the hospital and catches a cab and goes back to the track. <laughs> and once there, some jockeys brought him to the first aid station. He basically diagnosed with some bruises and a slight case of shock. Um, he wanted to go back to the track because he was the leading jockey and there was like two days left where if he won the most, he would win a bonus. And sure enough, he rides the next day. He gets two wins. He gets $500 and a watch. And the San Francisco Chronicle reads, Ralph Nevis died but lives to ride and win. So very good, man. That's a that's, that's a movie. Awesome. Yeah, that's a movie, right? It that really is, is just that is because yeah. it. When I read that, I thought, oh, this is a joke. No, right? He's in a morgue, man, and gets out and runs back. That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. it's like a horror movie. That's exactly yes. right. Yes. So speaking of movies, there's one other thing I noticed in the magazine is under the people section, and they talk about so the movie Bang the Drum slowly come yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With yeah. Um, Robert De Niro, Michael Moriarty, right, and. Vincent Gardina plays the manager of the team. And right. Vincent Gardina was a character actor. He was in Death Wish. He was in uh, Moonstruck. He, he's with the Cher. kind of guy that you wouldn't know his name, but if, if guys our age looked up and saw his face, you'd go, I know that guy. Right. So, anyway, he knew nothing about baseball. And the funny thing is, they'd have to tell him, where's, he'd ask, where's third base or whatever. They'd right. Explain <laughs> the whole game to him. Can you imagine? That's like talking to my wife about baseball. Well, that's why it's called acting. He got nominated for an Academy Award. He did? He did. Yes, for that. And yes. he had no idea. So what... he found third base. He did. Billy, you got something? <laughs> yeah, I was I was just reading about it. It was in a basketball roundup that I didn't know Rick, Mateen, Rick Patino was in school when Dr. J played. Yeah. But he didn't get to play because freshmen weren't allowed to play on the varsity. Uh... I didn't know that about Rick Patino. I thought, you know... And he was also teammates with with uh, former Orioles uh, young winner Mike Flanagan. You know, I just you don't you don't realize some of these guys are around guys that are just as good in other in sports other as sports, them. Right. Yeah. I'm going to wrap it up unless you guys have something else here with no. a couple other baseball players that uh, inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame 50 years ago. Two of the Yankees' all-time greats, and how great is this that they went in together? I didn't know this. Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford go into the hall. Wow. Um, as teammates, they were completely the, the face of that franchise, the Mick and Whitey. Um, so a good way to, to, to close out the January 28th, 1974 issue. Next week, we've got Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier on the cover. So go and take a look at that issue. Um, it's uh, one, of the, one of the three fights that those two legends, guy, legends uh, had. The Thriller in Manila being the third one. So um, until then, I want to thank Larry Farmer once again. Larry, yeah, thank, Larry, you. Great. Larry. Larry thank you. Larry, thank you so and, much. And uh, Mark, good job getting him to join us. Billy, Mark, Jeremy, thanks for everything. See you next week on Past Our Prime. Bye. Bye. And I have a new brother. Yes. And another mother. <laughs> <laughs>